0: hello everybody welcome to the finance friday webinar with me today we've got dawn Ridler, who as many of you know is an independent financial advisor she's based in johannesburg and she has a practice called Karinga wealth management welcome dawn thanks jackie nice to be here again and thanks for being with us today and then also today we have herman pretorius who is not a financial advisor but he knows a lot about finance particularly from the vantage point of government policy. And Hermann is with the Institute of Race Relations and he's been causing quite a stir uh, in corporate financial services circles because he's been running a campaign that has put the whole concept of prescribed assets on the table. So we're going to be speaking to him a bit about that and how this uh, debate can possibly impact on your long-term savings. So welcome, Hermann.
1: Thank you very much, Jackie, and I must say it really is an honour to join someone as impressive as Dawn on this. I will try. I will try to hold a candle, but I, I can't promise anything.
0: Okay, well, Herman, what we do know is that, that you aren't scared of anybody, and you've been taking on the big guns in the financial services sector this week. So perhaps we can just start with you. Let's firstly just take a step back. What is the Institute of Race Relations? What, do you, what is the work that you do, and how are you funded?
1: Right. So the Institute of Race Relations is a liberal think tank, a classic liberal think tank that was established in 1929. Um, So we just turned 91 this year. And uh, we we really firmly believe uh, um, that non-racialism, a free market economy, Uh, property rights, the rule of law, you know, the good old staples of sensible government, at least in our view. Um, In 1929, they didn't really have a voice of advocacy. And that's why the Institute was developed. And I think we've been causing trouble ever since. Um, And what we try to do is we try to do uh, sound research, uh, but not just restrict ourselves to um, you know, observing the decline or observing the rise of of whatever circumstances uh, might occur in, the, in 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 South Africa and perhaps more uh, regionally as well. But we try to uh, use that research to uh, implement uh, some forms of ad- advocacy and activism, and uh, really try to counter some of the worst ideas. And I think to conclude my rambling answer, I think the best. Um, to, to to understand what we do, and I think also to understand where this uh, kerfuffle about prescribed assets this past week comes from is to really look at the concept of the balance of forces, which from a political perspective is somewhat how the ANC operates. It it kind of puts an idea out there that it uh, is ideologically aligned to or wants to push. And then it it, it kind of tests the water. If the balance of forces seem to be in favor of the idea, they continue with it. If the balance of forces seem to be against it, um, then they often have strategic or tactical retreats. So when it comes to issues like prescribed assets, like property rights, what we really try and do is shift the balance of forces in the favour of things like property rights and free market economics.
0: So let's just um, have a look at what exactly is the concept of prescribed assets. How do you actually define prescribed assets?
1: Um, I think uh, one one of the talents of, I think, um, leftist movements and governments and political parties is to couch some of their most dangerous ideas in very boring-sounding language. Um, So prescribed assets, uh, you might identify two individual things. Prescriptions are good. You get them at the pharmacy. Assets are good. You know, they store value. But the concept of prescribed assets is quite sinister in the sense that it – It's where the government essentially instructs investment fund managers or asset managers where they can store uh, the monies, the savings, the pensions of ordinary people and where they should invest it. In South Africa, we've known this before, excuse me, in the 70s and 80s. in South Africa, under the National Party government, had some very, very serious prescribed assets policies. At one point, up to you know the value of 75% of um, investments were subject to government prescription as to where the money must be put. Uh, so, when it comes to prescribed assets, um, our our view on it is that it is a desperate attempt to uh, get revenue or get some form of uh, resources to fund government expenditure for a cash-strapped state.
0: Okay, but perhaps if we can just look at it from a practical point of view, maybe we could just um, uh, quickly move over to Dawn. Dawn, the the prescribed assets, doesn't the government already, to a certain extent, prescribe how funds must be invested?
2: Yes, they do. It's called Regulation 28, Um, and it's... it puts mostly uh, maximum limits, I mean, you've got them up on, on the, the screen there, where um, equities can be a maximum of 75% and the other 25% can be made up of uh, cash, bonds and um, those those sort of assets. Um, in reality, um, very few of, of my clients have, you know, opted for the full 75% equity exposure. Certainly, in the last few years, because you know, just our stock market just doesn't perform properly, and there's also a cap on how much you can use in terms of offshore assets. So there is already that um, prescription in it. So when it comes to bonds, and this is what we're talking about here, is that the government, with their prescribed assets, wants to issue government bonds to fund infrastructure. Well, uh, that's in the in the latest green paper. They want to to fund infrastructure. Um, which, which I think is probably a bit disingenuous. You know, it sounds, oh yeah, of course. You know, we must build infrastructure and it'll create jobs and all that other bullshit. So it's whatever. But <laughs> luckily, uh, we're all over uh, 21 you know, in this webinar. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, the the thing is, I mean, if you look at failed infrastructure projects that that cost billions, I mean, Madupi and and Kusili are are you know have to be top of mind. You know, they run billions of. Um, their budget, they, you know, corruption is rife. You know, um, labour relations are completely shot. I mean, it's it's an absolute hornet's nest. And I think the sort of the South African experience over the World Cup, where the large private, mostly construction companies, sort of really got their noses well and truly stuck into that gravy train of infrastructure. Build there and um you know that we saw how that all sort of unraveled as as things go on by you know so um there there are very few government assets that really you know sort of sensible asset managers consider putting in any sort of um at at any sort of level in uh, in a government in, into a, an investment maybe the R186 which is the 10 year government bond the sovereign 10 year government bond you know, it's probably the highest profile, it's got a lot of liquidity, Um, you know, it's well liked by offshore investors and that kind of thing. Occasionally that might go in, but now to start saying, you know, um, in terms of infrastructure, we're going to, you know, spend all your money on building up the SABC, um, South African Airways, and all these other white elephants, you know, I I think that is the biggest problem that certainly I have on behalf of my clients.
0: Thank you. Now, while we hear from Herman, everybody is encouraged to pop their questions for Dawn and Herman into the question box that you see uh, on your control panel. Uh, Herman, so as we've heard, the government has always sort of imposed some kind of uh, guidance on investing. Why has this issue reared its head now? And why have you come out with guns blazing at sort of very powerful people and people that have often looked like they're on the side of the investor? Perhaps you could just briefly explain why well, this issue is now coming to a head?
1: I think um, the, 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 the the June uh, supplementary budget uh, really gave an overview as to the absolute bareness of the South African fiscal cupboard so um the state has has run out of money essentially, and then it's just a matter of you know there's there 's a fixed list of where government or a state can actually get money from. It can get it through increased taxation, but tax takes this year will be disastrous. Um, And the South African taxpayer is already quite under some strain. So tax raises, or increased taxes, really not an option for new government expenditure. Uh, You can have austerity measures cutting back on uh, government expenditure. But the problem is that is politically not really feasible uh, for quite a few reasons, politically at least, if you want to be incredibly cynical. And oftentimes when looking at these kind of things, you have to be a bit cynical. Uh, It's because uh, the... Government expenditure and the the, the scale of it is often uh, part and parcel of the patronage glue that holds the governing uh, party together. So um, that's, that's at least from a political perspective, it's not really feasible, but then also you run into trouble when we've heard Tito Mbuweni make noises or President Ramaphosa make noises about cutting the public sector wage bill, then you get incredible opposition from unions, so you can't save money there. And a few colleagues of mine, we've recently done a few basic calculations. If you were to reduce the public sector wage bill by 10%, If you were to end SOE bailouts to to these failing entities, um, and if you were to significantly reduce wasteful expenditure on a municipal level, that would free up about 154 billion rand annually. But the problem is that these um, issues have political obstacles. So you can't raise taxes, you can't cut state expenditure. What remains? You can try to borrow as a government and now uh, having reached junk status long overdue actually from all three main rating agencies. I think we've lost uh, Herman briefly. Or me. Mm. Hello, can you hear me? Hi, yes, you're back. Sorry, I
0: don't know what happened there, bit of a technical glitch. Sorry, Herman. So you were telling us about this enormous cost to the taxpayer.
1: Yes, yes, so apologies about that. Um, I, I don't know um, how many people have wished a technical glitch on me this week, but I think the list might be quite long. Um, so, the, the, no te- taxation isn't an option to get money from. Cutted, uh, cutting state expenditure really isn't a feasible option. Uh, you can borrow money um, if you're a government, but our junk status makes that difficult. Long overdue, in fact, with Moody's finally bowing to, you know, the broader wisdom of reducing us to sub-investment grade. Um, and so, so, borrowing isn't really an option. So what you're left with are essentially two very, very dangerous Uh, options, you can either uh, endorse modern monetary theory where you go into money printing mode. And thank goodness the governor of the Reserve Bank has uh, offered some strong opposition to that because, I mean, the the, the historical lesson of hyperinflation uh, is just too terrifying to imagine with even uh, Minister Mbawaini in his June supplementary budget, seemingly to educate at least some of his party members what a sovereign debt crisis looks like. So if you can't print money, uh, you can't increase taxes and you can't borrow more, then um i mean there's there's another option a kind of a, a minor option of of actually soes running a profit uh but i mean that it it is you know beyond i think realistic in south africa you have to be a special kind of useless to make a loss on a monopoly something like escom so then the final issue we 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 stay, sit with is is actually just you know where can you find private assets to use in government expenditure and a government minister Uh, who shall remain unnamed, once told one of my colleagues, um, in in something of of a vulnerable moment of honesty, that part of the government, the the, the governing party, the tripartite alliance, um, part of their approach to economic policy and fiscal policy is what they call a sustainable model of wealth extraction. So once you've uh, removed all the other options, the question of wealth extraction is what remains. And I think it's no coincidence, if we're going to talk about retirement savings, the two areas where most retirement savings um, currently find their value is in residential property or some form of immovable property. Expropriation without compensation has not been kind uh, to those assets. And then on the other hand, uh, you have actual, you know, Uh, funds and and, and financial assets and pensions and savings, and the issue of prescribed assets first put on the table in 2017, then put into the election manifesto of the ANC in 2019, really hasn't been kind to the remaining assets of many people nearing retirement age in South Africa.
0: Dawn, do you think that Herman's overreacting to this, or do you think it's a good idea that somebody like Herman is uh, campaigning against prescribed assets?
2: Uh, you know, I, the more people that campaign against it, the, the better. It, you know, it's diabolical. You know, I'm old enough to have um, at least had some exposure, mostly through uh, when I was doing my MBA, to what prescribed assets were, and the effect it had on savings. Then, um, you know, they it it is a diabolical answer. You know, but. Um, the thing is that um, it's not just with prescribed assets, I think the NHI is another one. It's, it's um, the NHI just see all these premiums being paid in in private medical aid, they see all the reserves being held by the medical aid funds, and they think, "Oh, I'd like a bit of that, thank you very much, right? Um, and I think we're, we're um, at the same sort of um, place with, with prescribed assets. Um, I think it's, it, it's the world's worst idea. Um, but again, you know, um, as as Herman says, the the government is stuck with his head between a rock and a hard place. Where does it get the money from? Um, you know, when it came to sort of um, perspective ways to fund the NHI, for example, um, I you know sort of ran through the numbers because you can't find any kind of budget or anything like that that the government has even attempted to do a kind of budget in terms of um, how much uh, the NHI is going to cost, and you know it it runs into you know, 500 billion kind of arena, if you if you're looking at it, and so you know, there's only so much that they can take, and you know, the thing is to to put that sort of amount of money that they need in perspective, they would have to increase VAT up to like 25, 28 percent, you know, um, and you know, you know, from my point of view, that's probably the fairest way to get the money because it is then taxing consumption rather than extracting wealth, as Herman was saying. Um, but, you know, you know that's going to go down, you know, like a lead balloon when you, you know, wake up one morning and suddenly, you know, VAT is at 28%. Thank you, Dawn. So that that ties in with Chris's question. He says, what are the
0: chances that Regulation 28 will be used to fund the NHI? Herman, have you got any thoughts on that?
1: I, Regulation
0: 28? Uh, I think he means prescribed assets. Do you think that they're going to take pension fund money to pay for the NHI?
1: Um, I must say I am always very uh, sceptical when it comes to this idea of ring-fenced sources of government funding uh, with a set destination for that funding. We've seen it the world over. It never never works. Government uh, places itself only in an immense situation of temptation. Uh, when it thinks that, you know, we have a destination that people like, uh, we have a source that people kind of stomach, uh, you know, in, increased uh, uh, revenue reliance on, on some form of, of tax or national insurance contribution or whatever. But the problem is these ring-fenced ideas of set destinations for money from specific sources, I, I don't think ever works. So I don't buy into that. So would prescribed assets be used to fund the NHI? Well, I think I don't think that there's, there's that that's a useful uh, uh, idea to think that you know specific policy for a specific policy. What I do think we should understand is the the, the fiscal constraints we are in, um, without even thinking about NHI prescribed assets. If if the government took you know, the NHI off the table tomorrow, that will not help our debt situation. Uh, The debt situation is horrendous without the NHI. So once you start thinking about, you know, the NHI, oh, we need money for that. No, no, no. We need money for the 77 other priorities before we even get to thinking about where the money of the NHI will come from.
0: Thank you. And another question, Mark wants to know, are living annuities also being considered? So this whole issue of prescribed assets, will this tap into What kind of uh, retirement fund could this potentially tap into? Dawn, um, do you want to you take know, that
1: one?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, annuities at the moment aren't regulated by Regulation 28, uh, living annuities or life annuities, um, which is uh, one of the sort of um, arguments used by some of your other Panelists um, for everybody to retire from their retirement annuities, age 55, cash them in, put them into living annuities because you don't, aren't regulated by um, Regulation 28, and you can have full offshore exposure if you want to. Um, so I don't think it's going to actually apply to, to living annuities. It will apply to provident funds, pension funds, and retirement annuities. Thank you. So that ties into Amanda's question,
0: who wants to know then, is a contribution to an RA still recommended or should you rather save for retirement in other investments, despite the tax benefit of RAs? Herman, you look like you've got uh, something to say there.
1: No, no, that's my face when I have nothing to say. Um okay. when it when it comes to financial advice and investment advice, I will defer to the experts on that. Okay, Dawn.
2: Um you know, I've actually um in anticipation for you know of this um webinar, um writing a blog about it because you you actually have to get into the weeds when it comes to the maths um to, to really make the right decision when it comes to this. And um at the end of the day, if you look at it, you can um make a deduction of 27.5% of your of your income. And income's not just salary, it can be income from all sorts of sources. Um with a cap of three fifty thousand Rand per annum. Um, now, say you've got, you know, maybe an average, uh, you know, probably I'll probably get into a trouble here, but, you know, say you're earning fifty thousand Rand a month. Um, your uh, marginal tax rate is gonna be 39%, okay? So if you go and do the maximum um, allowed deduction, you know, uh, contribute to the RA and then, um, Claim it against your tax. You're going to be getting, and and so you, it, it works out about 165,000 rand a year that you could do as a maximum. Um, you would get 39% roughly, a little bit less perhaps, um, of that back from the taxman. That's a chunk of change, you know that, you know, um, to and you know to make up that sort of. Um, you know, hundred and sixty five thousand rand. Now if you take that hundred and sixty five thousand Rand and say open up a flexible account, in other words, you know, you investing it where you like, you're not putting it into another RA. You've got your 165 as, you know, that you've got from um in your RA, and now you've got this extra thirty-nine percent back that the government's given you, it's going to give you a return that you can't get anywhere else. So, you know, to totally dismiss the the um, amount of money that you're actually getting back from the government. Look, it, it's deferred tax because when you retire from that retirement annuity, um, it becomes an income and a compulsory annuity, um, and then you're taxed on it. And there and the are other sort of tax issues along along those lines and considerations. You know, particularly when you're trying to um, encourage or discourage people from retiring early from their retirement annuities, purely for you know, this is such an emotive topic at the moment. Um, and people are making decisions based on emotion and not really looking at the fact to say, you know, because there are penalties, there's lump sum taxes, all sorts of things that can actually decimate, you know, decades of your your savings purely because you think this country is going to hell in a handbasket and want to get everything out.
0: So this is exactly what Edwin is touching on. And he's obviously feeling... A little bit emotional and concerned about it. And he asks, uh, if the ruling party wants to do something, they push it through. Is there anything we can do to stop it? And must we anticipate it by taking our money offshore? What can we, the people on the ground, do, he says. So that's the two issues there. The one is about uh, lobbying for change, which I guess would be a, a Her- is exactly what Herman is trying to do. <clears throat> and the second part of it is it, should you take your money offshore? So let's start with the lobbying. Herman, you you have sort of been you've put out this statement to uh, very senior captains of industry. What else are you trying to do to to change and and stop the government in its tracks? And and do you think you'll be successful? <laughs>
1: Well, I certainly hope we are successful. The the, the the problem with bad policy is you cannot defeat it utterly. You can only set it back time after time after time. And that plays into the balance of forces approach that the ANC really is famous for in terms of how it approaches ideology. And I think expropriation without compensation is a typical issue. Uh, put on the table at the 2007 Polokwane conference, um, mooted for a few times. Um, I think it was in the late 2000s when uh, the then uh, head of, uh, or, uh, of, of ATSA's, uh, I can't remember exactly which division said that, you know, expropriation without compensation would be an absolute disaster for the banking sector, who have a lot of their um, assets and their exposure on um, you know um, immovable property uh, and and then the ANC retreated from that and and, and it gave us a few more years of, of you know pushing against this idea. So can we ever defeat bad policy ultimately? Uh, no, but what you can do is and and what I seem to have an annoying uh, ability to do is make make some noise about um, certain issues and really involve uh, 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 stakeholders. Uh, Because in in the issue of prescribed assets, you really have three parties. You have the individual whose money it is. You have the government who wants to get their hands on it. And then you have the asset manager or uh, the investment fund manager in between uh, trying uh, uh, to, you know, uh, do their job. Now, I, I acknowledge that I place people in that industry in a very uncomfortable position. But I think the uncomfortability they experience is minor compared to the uncomfortability that the people of South Africa and their clients will experience if sufficient opposition to these policies aren't offered. And I think two important lessons for corporate South Africa, especially when it comes to the financial sector, should be the mining sector and the agricultural sector. About a decade ago, the mining sector in South Africa thought it could appease bad policies, it could get a seat at the table and ensure that the worst instincts of this government could be held back and compromise policies, pragmatic policies could be implemented. And it is an absolute tragedy what has since happened to the mining industry. The moment you uh, start thinking that there's something to compromise on, uh, then you are down a very slippery slope. And it reminds me of the Winston Churchill incident where he was sitting next to a rather unpleasant woman at dinner and he said to her, will you sleep with me for a million <laughs> pounds? Uh, my Churchill is, it's, it's, it's on my CV. It's one of my better characteristics. Um, Madam, will you sleep with me for a million pounds? And she said, Well, um, I'll have to, yes, 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 Mr. Churchill, I think so. And then a bit later, um, just loud enough for fellow guests to hear, he said, Madam, will you sleep with me for £10? And she said, Mr. Churchill, what kind of mad woman do you think I am? And he said, oh, I think we've already established that. We're just now haggling over the price. Uh, So the problem here is once you you, uh, seed the principle that property rights, whether they are land or asset or mineral rights, can be negotiated, can be put in play to appease a government with some terrible ideas, uh, then you really are onto a losing wicket. You're just haggling over the price. So when it comes to what we can actually do is, uh, unfortunately, uh, what, what I did this week, make things an issue. Um, in, make concepts and bad ideas like prescribed assets so toxic uh, that the government knows it will not get far, and if it tries to push ahead, it will uh, it will get severe opposition. People should never forget that um, governments really, in their heart of hearts, rather fear um, what their own citizens and their own electorate could inflict on them.
0: Thank you, Herman. Um, and I see you've also got um, opera studies on your CV in addition to acting. <laughs> so multi-talented.
2: Well, you can sing for us in the next
1: answer, are you, Herman? Well, that that puts new, you know, meaning to the concept of singing for your supper. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm just glad, you know. Thank you very much for saying I have I have at least uh, one talent. I'm I've been. If you believe social media, I have very few.
0: So, well, anyway, so, Edward, uh, I hope that answers your question. Herman, at least, is fighting for our corner. Pete has more of a comment rather than a question. He says, why can't government cut salaries across the board by 30 to 40%? He says, the private sector is suffering up to 100% salary cuts, retrenchments, losing livelihoods. With all sources of government under pressure, it is only a question of time when the government will not be able to pay salaries or grants. So we saw recently the OECD did, in fact, single out South Africa for uh, paying civil servants way above the world averages. Herman, is this an issue that you might be tackling soon?
1: Uh, one of the problems here, and I think I am alluded to it a bit earlier, that this is really a political problem. The ANC has uh, spent itself into a corner uh, Cada deployment and the patronage network; these two elements really uh, uh, form the core ideological or philosophical adhesives of the tripartite alliance. And the moment you start tampering with those, uh, you run risks of of, of stoking uh, internal uh, factional battles. I mean. Uh, it would be incredible to see what factional battles in the ANC would look like. They are such an unusual occurrence. No, um, so the, the 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 problem really is you've got the unions uh, being opposed to this. You've got uh, a CADA network being opposed to this. And you have uh, the, the very model of the ANC's function, the patronage network, really opposed to this. I think it is the obvious thing to do. Um, our civil service is behemothic and inefficient and lazy and fat. I'm not talking about individuals here. It's just not a very good or efficient system. So um, it, it, it should, by all rights, be uh, some of the most, you know, I don't think if the concept of, uh, it's low hanging fruit for where you can actually get some uh, uh, government austerity and sensible prudential uh, fiscal management in. But uh, as, as President Ramaphosa recently reminded us that that um, the unity of the ANC is absolutely paramount uh, to him. So that's a, that's a very large political obstacle uh, uh to to you know something like that but okay, I, I just also think I, I should add something um here is i think part of why the government is so panicked about um its asset poverty uh is and and entertaining things like uh, prescribed assets is i think it has a fundamental uh, uh wrong idea of what really drives economic prosperity and economic growth. And I think this is at the heart of these massive infrastructure spending plans. These infrastructure spending plans will not add purchasing power. To the South African consumer, if you want to have an economy that can develop into, you know, a sensible for a source of tax revenue, then it's purchasing power you need to focus on, not just money moving from one place to another, a person getting a job that, uh, you know, is 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 perhaps temporary and doesn't really add to something that could expand the purchasing power of the South African consumer. So the idea that you must spend billions and billions of brands to get economic growth is fundamentally wrong and fundamentally why the government is so concerned about its asset poverty. They think you need to have government spending at the heart of economic uh, activity and economic growth, otherwise you cannot achieve sensible economic growth. And I think history, the ANC's history itself, especially between the years 1996 and 2007, when uh, there was such uh, prudent fiscal policy in place that would today almost be regarded as, you know, right-wing ideologue uh, uh, kind of government spending. Um, I think if, if, if we are going to seriously look at issues such as government spending, we need to go one step further and ask why does the government want to spend these billions and billions? And is there a possibility to get to a growth situation without the government doing uh, these things or going to these kinds of extremes?
0: Thank you. So Dawn, before we get into the meat of investing offshore, there's a, que- a question that ties in with prescribed assets. Uh, this is from uh, Ray. He says that some commentators, and he mentions the name Brian Hirsch, but he's not sure if he remembers it was him, maintain that prescribed assets is not such a bad thing. Uh, and he says this is the, the, the media are overblowing the issue. And uh, he wants to know his take is that government bonds have outperformed the JSE. What is your view?
2: Um, you know, the, the thing is, uh, you know, as I said earlier, um, they're government bonds and they're government bonds. Uh, you know, the R186 has certainly, uh, you know, done extremely well and is in a lot of my clients' portfolios. But I'm not going to go and stick Danell in there and South African Airways and, and other uh, other rubbish in there, you know, um, that, you know, they, they could be liquidated and then, you know, those bonds are actually worth nothing. So, you know, it's, um, there isn't sufficient transparency right now to say, what are those bonds going to look like? What are they going to be invested in? Is there a possibility? You know, is there going to be, you know, South African Airways, airplanes, infrastructure of some description, you know, are we, you know, going to throw even more money at, at South African Airways only to liquidate them? And those bonds are now worthless. So I think that is what the concern is, is that it's not that all government bonds are, are rubbish. It's just, um, there needs to be more transparency, and ideally, if if this has to come into play, choice. So you can choose. To say, yeah, I will. Yeah, I'll take government bonds, but I'll take the R86, and you can keep your South African Airways kind of thing, rather than have one great big, you know, pot into which you just throw endless amounts of money to be squandered. Quite frankly. Thank,
1: Thank you, and then. I- or- but yes, can I add something very, very quickly on that? Me is too. that I think um, if, if if something is worth investing, it doesn't need asset prescription. So the challenge really here isn't isn't you know can prescribed assets work? It is can the government offer sufficient incentive for people to willingly invest in what they want? the public or the pension managers or asset managers to invest in. The problem here, and, and, and let me just very quickly quote from Enoch Gordon-Guana, um, and we are saying, well, the resolution of conference says we must explore prescription, but prescription will only apply where there's attractive investment and people do not want to invest. So it's it's voluntary until it isn't. And that's the problem with prescribed assets. Is the moment you need to force someone to invest in something, you know, the merit of that investment is at best questionable.
0: Thank you, Dawn. You want
2: to add to that? You know, I, I um, you know, quite a lot of the South African banks um, own debt in these, some of these SOEs. Um, you know, and obviously quite worried about it. Your South African Airways, in particular. Um, and and they've tried bundling up that debt and securitized notes and flogging it to these asset managers. And these asset managers have taken a look inside this and said, keep it, you know? Yeah, so Dawn, here's
0: another question following up on your your RA discussion. Oreste wants to know, can you ever recommend RAs even though RA returns seem to have been horrendous in the last five years? Uh, And we carried uh, some recent articles uh, by...
2: Magnus Heistek, where he showed that some returns have indeed been horrendous. Look, um, there's absolutely no doubt that the Johannesburg stock exchange has been flat for the last five years. You know, Um, billions have been lost out of the economy. Uh, It doesn't look like we're ever going to get that back. Um, And um, so if you've been heavily invested in equity um, or in equity trackers or whatever it is in your R.A., you're not going to be, be happy. Um, if you've had a more balanced approach, the, you know, those balanced funds that have bonds in it, particularly um, up pre, pre-COVID, pre um, corporate bonds were doing really quite nicely. You could get sort of eight and a half, nine and a half percent out of those, those corporate bonds. And you find that a lot of these balanced funds or balanced bespoke funds actually had quite a lot of corporate debt in it rather than equity because you were getting the, the kind of yields that you would expect from equity. And look at, you know, the R186 is a, another example where you were having bonds and fixed income giving you returns that you normally expect from equity. So it, it depends on this, you know, structure. So look, none of the investments over the last five years, even if you've got will have shot the lights out. but um, as long as you invested in, in say, unit trusts or whatever it is that aren't, don't have too high fees, you know, eroding it, you would have been at least able to beat inflation plus probably two or three three percent. So, you know, we as South African investors and RAs and all of that kind of thing got very used to getting 15, 18, 25, 27, 28 percent, you know, back in the sort of the 2000 sort of era and, um, you know, up to the World Cup and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, you know, you aren't getting st- stellar returns, but you can still get it to to keep up with inflation. And, you know, RAs are a long term investment. You know, they're, they're not an instant in investment. They're, they're for most people going to be there for 20, 20 years or, or so. You know, I mean, I'm not even a formal retirement age yet. I'm giving it away a bit. But um, so, you know, you, there are going to be swings and, and roundabouts. Whether the JSE is going to, you know, pull itself out of this slump and that kind of thing, you know, remains to be seen. But um, there the are very few ways of getting money back from the tax man anymore. There used to be a plethora of them. And now, unless you're working for yourself and, uh, you know, run your own practice from home or whatever else it is, there you've got you know a little bit of local travel and and that's about it and the r a is the only way to get a decent amount of money back from the tax man that you know at least makes up for the fact that it hasn't been doing it and you can still get the you know if you've had the the maximum allowable um offshore exposure that you can put in an r a or into that's in the balance fund, they will have also have done a, a bit better. I I still think RA's are are a good thing. You know, I I used to teach statistics, so you can get numbers to say anything you like. Quite frankly, um, you know, give me a, give me a couple of tables to get it to say anything you like. Um, but you know, which is why in my blog I try to sort of make it as simple as possible um, and you know not hoodwink people. But um, you know, they they when making that decision, should you be in an RA or shouldn't you? It's quite easy to actually run uh, you know, investments side by side um, and, and have a look and say, right, if we'd run these side by side for the last five years and taken the tax considerations and taken, you know, there has been depreciating over the last five years for at least 5% per annum. Um, so, you know, and, and you take those into account and then you can make a reasonable decision and not an emotional decision. An emotional decision can hurt you badly can put a huge hole into your retirement savings if you're not careful.
0: Thank you. Now, we've been speaking quite a lot about the government trying to hoodwink us, and I've been getting, seeing a few questions here from Brian, which are giving me the distinct idea that he's worried that his own financial advisor has hoodwinked him. And he says that he's over 55, and his advisor has transferred his RA into a preserver. He says, should this not rather be in a living annuity? And what are the differences?
2: How, how can, you can't put an RA into a preserver. Mike, you can put a preserver into an RA, okay. but not the other way around.
0: Okay, so definitely yeah. there's something funny going on there. And then Brian also yeah. says, is a living annuity safe from prescribed
2: assets? Uh, well, at the moment it is. Yeah, at the okay. moment it is. and And there's no talk that... Um, living annuity is going to be. And that that's part of the sort of discussion when, you know, should you retire at age 55 and put into annuity is because regulation 28 and prescribed assets and those kind of things aren't going to apply. Um, so at the moment, no.
0: Thank you. So we, we're getting to the stage where we're going to be wrapping up soon. So we've got two more questions, one for Herman and one for Dawn. Um, can a loan from the IMF force the direction of the economic change that the government seems unable to bring about? And if so, how? And that's a question from Rose.
1: I think so. I I, th- I think I, I don't think it will be a panacea, you know, a cure all. But I don't I don't I, I think that there's an accountability mechanism and a, and a source of uh, um, pressure. Uh, in in an IMF agreement that could enforce some more pragmatic fiscal and economic policy, at least fiscal policy, uh, definitely from the government. Um, and, I, and I say that for two reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, when the anc took over in 1994 uh with great plans for a social democratic welfare state they realized that the cupboard was actually quite bare um that the 1980s had not been kind to the to the south african fiscus and uh they they had to reassess many of their and and then shelve many of their more uh, uh social welfare policies and the Mbeki, the Mbeki manual uh, kind of thinking, uh, almost uh, bear the resemblance, or bears the resemblance of uh, a, a, a preemptive avoidance of the need to go to the IMF, uh, where they implemented the kind of fiscal restraints that would, in all likelihood, have been. The uh, the result of an IMF agreement in the late 90s, so the um, the, the threat of uh, the loss of sovereignty over at least fiscal policy really loomed large for the ANC then. Uh, to such an extent that they uh, um, uh, rather ruthlessly, from a political point of view, outmaneuvered some of the more uh, a socialist left-leaning uh, uh, a traditional idea policy uh, drivers within the party itself um, and adopted a quite centrist and even centre-right fiscal policy. So the threat of the IMF has had this, um, you know, course-correcting effect on the ANC before. Now we must acknowledge that the ANC of today is not the ANC of 1996 nor the ANC of 2004. Uh, but th- there might be some institutional memory of uh, that sort of pressure, uh, and 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 what that might require. And then on a on a second, more you know, less historic, more current affairs reason is one of the campaigns that I ran for the institute this year was a correspondence campaign. Uh, that we identified some of the most prominent IMF donor nations, and at a local level, uh, we started contacting ambassadors, escalating all the way uh, to, to uh, ministers in government, uh, making writing a, a quite substantive letter saying, you know, the, the likelihood of a South African approach to the IMF is increasingly likely at that stage, now we know that it has in fact happened, um, and. Uh, They will be asking for uh, for some funding support, but you as an IMF donor nation need to know why we are in the state we are in in the first place. Before you give us the money, we are not opposed to you giving us the money, but before you give us the money, take a moment to consider what happened to get South Africa into this dire fiscal situation. And we laid out some of the more fundamental policy failures, especially of the last 10 years. Um, that really saw the government lose focus on economic growth. And I think it is bizarre that if you look at the practicalities of government action, economic growth has not been the core objective of economic policy, but transformation and wealth redistribution Uh, they have been the core of economic policy. And what the the, the phraseology we used in corresponding with the IMF donor nations was pro-growth structural reform. And then you look uh, a month or two ago when the IMF and South Africa did come to an agreement and you look at the statement that the IMF put out and you find the phraseology growth enhancing structural reform. Now, it is similar enough for me to think that our pressure campaign in that regard had some positive effects. And I think that's a lesson for most South Africans. Realize that you have more power uh, than you you might think you have. So the fact of the matter is, look at the COVID relief uh, mechanisms put in place whether it's Moldova or Egypt or Rwanda, uh, and compare the IMF's rhetoric on those to the IMF's rhetoric with regard to the South African agreement. And you see an agreement with some reprimand in it, uh, which uh, differentiates its fr- it from perhaps other countries. And you also see some warnings, and you see some. If, if I mean diplomatic speak is often a bit milk toast, but in terms of diplomatic speak, the IMF's warning uh, to the ANC government about "quote unquote" uh, growth-enhancing structural reform was uh, quite sound. So the long and short of this, uh, mostly the long because I, 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 I'm I rambling a bit now, but the, the idea is that I do think uh, an IMF agreement, uh, whether it's so this current one or a more extensive mechanism in the future for, w- for which this one might have been a testing of the waters a bit, I think that has some positive potential to force some fiscal pragmatism uh, onto the ANC government.
0: Thank you for that comprehensive Um, answer. Sorry, Dawn, you have uh, something to add there?
2: um, Would it also not give um, the ANC an excuse? Um, Say, look, this isn't our idea, it's been forced on us. You know, to go back to, for example, the the unions um, to say, listen, we don't want to cut your salaries, but the IMF are forcing us to do it.
1: Yes, no, definitely. Um, I, I have a very, very, you know, uh, able in Dr. France Grenier, and whenever I need to do something that might upset a colleague, France always tells me, you know, just, just say I, I told you to do this. So I do think that it will be politically convenient um, and perhaps even politically enticing uh, for the ANC to have that kind of scapegoat. I think you're quite right.
0: So one more question now, and Charles got his question in really early, and he's very keen to hear from Dawn. He has an RA in South Africa. He's moved to the UK. He says he hasn't yet financially immigrated. He thinks that the RAND is going to slide against major currencies, and he thinks long-term he's going to need an income in a foreign currency, probably euro, British pounds, maybe US dollars. He says, what is the best action to take? He says he's currently withdrawing at a 5% level.
2: Oh, uh, uh, so he's got an annuity. Yeah. An so they're not a not an RA then. No, he he he's got an annuity. Um. Yeah. You know. Um. You when when a client comes to me with that kind of decision, the first thing you do is you have a look at their tax. Um. To see whether um because if he's not earning here and it's where where is he a tax resident. Um, you know, there's expat tax and I know that Tito Mbuweni is considering re-looking at um, you know, the whole structure around financial immigration and all of those kind of things. But um they, you know, if, if his if his tax allows it, there might be um, some, you know, leeway to increase the five percent even higher. Take it out on an annual annual basis as opposed to on a monthly um, basis, and and then just take it offshore because you're allowed to do that. Um, you know, even if you do financially emigrate, um, you know, it is quite um, tax onerous to now cash it in and take it out. You could still increase it to the 17.5% in which, you know, it'll be gone in five, five and a half, six years um, if you take it out at its absolute maximum. But you need to look at the tax implications um, when it comes to all of that kind of stuff.
0: So the the message is when you've immigrated, you need advice
2: more than ever, I would think.
0: Presumably more than one advisor, Dawn, do you think you need more than one advisor in, in the different jurisdictions?
2: You are going to need more than one advisor. You know, obviously, um, uh, you need advice before you emigrate because there are a lot of things you should do even before you even consider uh, leaving the country or going into uh, financial emigration and all of all of those kind of things, so that you don't stuff things up here. Um, But once you're over over there, and you know, say it's in the UK or something, you know, there is double tax agreement. Um, you either find somebody who knows both tax regimes, which is maybe a little bit difficult at that sort of detailed level, or you are going to in fact need um an advisor who or or maybe the two advisors talk to each other for example, to make sure that you know double taxation doesn't take place and that you get the right um you know right cut right outcome at the end of the day
0: thank you and before we sign off um I didn't really get a chance to introduce Dawn properly for people who haven't uh, heard her at our webinars before. And you'll see from Dawn's CV that she's a zoologist and a botanist. And Dawn, you've got some very interesting plants hanging up there on your ceiling.
2: Yes. Well, actually, um, I I could take you a full tour of my my garden with my rare clivias and uh, greenhouse and orchids. Uh, I think last week I had one of my orchids up behind me.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dawn, for joining us. I'm sure everybody's very grateful to hear your very comprehensive answers. And uh, thank you, Hermann, for joining us today and uh, setting out this very interesting political uh, discussion that affects all of us. So thank you to both of you.
1: Thank you, Jackie, and thank you, Dawn. An absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. And of course, uh, thank you to everybody for attending. Uh, We won't be here next Friday because of the long weekend, but we'll join you again this time, two weeks' time. Sorry, Dawn, you wanted to add something?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to wish uh, any of your Jewish viewers a uh, shonha Tova. Great. Thank That's you.
1: And, and might might I ask and next I time, time Dawn appears, might I ask that next time Dawn appears, she can put one of her lovely Clivias in view somehow?
2: <laughs> okay. We'll, okay. We'll think about it, Herman. <laughs> okay.
1: okay. Bye-bye. Bye.